All righty. All right, guys, Ethan here. And today on this week's You Ask, We Answered, I've got my buddy Peter, Dr. Peter Armstrong, DVM. What's going on? We're in Texas, and in Texas, you have to drink Texas beer. So we're going to crack us a cold one and get started answering your questions. We have a question from Steve Songer 79 It says, what do you recommend for a good probiotic? So probably my favorite probiotic um, that I use on a day-to-day basis is ProViable. Um, that's a really good option. It's in a capsule. You can sprinkle it on the food or, or put it in some water if they're um, not drinking or not eating while you want them to on the road. Um, and then Fortiflora would be the, uh, the other option. Perfect. We use the ProViable because it comes in that capsule. You hooked us up with those uh, a little while back, and I've definitely found that um, when we use probiotics the most is on the road, and when you're out in the wind trying to get this little powder to under your dog food, half of it goes on the ground anyway, so capsules work awesome. Great question. Next question we've got from Poodle Pointer underscore June. Daily eye boogers, normal or an indicator of something else going on? Normally, it's a really normal thing. Um, it can definitely be allergy related. Okay. Um, dust certain times of year, um, kind of just like us, um, we can see some some discharge from the eyes. So, um, if it's not a, a constant problem and it's not, you know, there's not scabs forming underneath that, then probably not super concerned about it. So I feel like I see it in. Uh, the change in environments at the kennel or if we do have like a period of really dusty days stuff like that just sure. yeah. general dust related as long as it's not turning green and getting really nasty yeah. wipe it for sure perfect good question thank you next we have isaiah james adrian i have a one and a half year old poodle pointer that has started stopping 10 feet short and wanting to pull the feathers at the tail end of her first duck season so sounds like it's coming back with a retrieve, stopping, setting them down, and then picking feathers. Um, really? That is not that uncommon of a thing for dogs to do with ducks. And the answer to that is formal retrieving work. You go through the steps. We have a series on our YouTube channel that you can watch, and we're going to shoot that to update that series with what we've changed kind of training philosophies over the last five, six years ago when we shot that. Um, but ultimately, formal retrieving work is going to be the answer. You want to go through all of the steps to say, learn, hold, learn, fetch, and then put it together to retrieve ducks in the end. It sounds like the end of his question, maybe it's at the end of the season here, not necessarily just the duck. So at least for me, since I'm not a trader, what happens to me is I usually end up hunting pretty sloppy towards the end of the season. So yeah. that's probably something in the off season that you can tidy back up, I would think. I think the way you read that is right. So at the tail end of your season, stuff has gotten sloppier. The answer to the question is formal retrieving work and to stay on top of it during the season or mid-season tune-ups, you know, get a good trainer that uh, comes and hunts with you every once in a while. <laughs> Next question we've got from Robert. <laughs> Robert on Instagram. My poodle pointer uh, pup is seven months old and is just better behaved and calm indoors while sitting. Um, do you teach your pointers to sit? That is the main question here. The answer to that is yes. It's a super common question because it's kind of an older philosophy to say you don't teach your pointers to sit. We don't teach our pointers to sit. And 
The reason for that all, in my opinion, comes back to the fact that the average person overdoes it and it becomes a default. Anytime you overdo anything in training, whether that be too much woeing or too much sitting or too much recall or too much place training, the dogs end up when they don't know what you're asking of them to move to one of those defaults. Like I did this before and got rewarded for it. So if you're trying to teach the dog to stand and you've put a ton of emphasis on sitting and they're kind of confused at what you're asking about woe, then they resort to sitting down and people think that the fact that they know how to sit is the problem. No, the problem is that you're not doing a good enough job of teaching. So yes, we teach all of our dogs to sit. It does not cause any problems as long as you're making sure to that it doesn't become a default. A good way to tell that is if every time you call your dog to you, they come up and instantly sit down. Or if you think that they're trying to get your attention, they just come up and sit down. And if they're sitting everywhere, you probably need to move on from that. Long story short, yes, you can teach your dog to sit. No, it won't cause problems unless it becomes a default. The dog's gotta be livable. <laughs> the dog has to be livable and obedience is part of that. Yeah. Next question from Kyle Winterstein. What are the early symptoms of a seed infection? Can anything be done to stop their prolification? The early signs are going to be the same as early signs of any infection. One is gonna be a fever. To um, a big infection like sluggishness, a change in personality. Um, even for us, a change in personality would be not eating uh, their meal or eating slower. Anything that you go, you seem off, you don't seem yourself, check their temperature. Yeah, I think fever is going to be the big thing that you're going to see in these guys. And I, and I think, um, and, and I definitely just as a practicing veterinarian fall into this where and so I think sometimes you have to be an advocate for your dog as well because yeah. we get into a routine of a, of a dog that comes in and, you know, every once in a while we see a dog that's got some kind of fever for some random thing. It goes away on its own. Um, but a Yorkie living in the house probably is not going to come into the same contact that these hunting dogs are. Yeah. So I think it's really important to try to just make sure you're an advocate for that and remember that that's a possibility that could happen. Because um, I think the big problems that, that I've seen have been when those dogs have gone three, four days without care, yeah, uh, appropriate care, and and all the antibiotics in the world oftentimes are not the appropriate care. And so recognizing that and saying, you know, asking your veterinarian, you know, in a polite way, I'm not trying to second guess you, but you know, we've come in a lot of contact with a lot of different things that normal dogs don't. So and just politely saying that, how do we just go ahead and make sure that we don't have a problem? And unfortunately, you know, a lot of times CT is the, the way to diagnose that. And, few practices have that you know readily available to use every day so we've had to go to the university every time yeah and so um, that's something just to keep in mind is just you know make sure that you're at least suggesting that um, you know to your veterinarian because they may not be thinking um, especially if you travel to hunting you know you live in dallas and um, probably not a big constant for people with a short hair but you know if you've been in kansas the last two weeks hunting definitely be a problem yeah the other thing would be that's pretty basic, uh, a standard CBC and CAM count. For sure. You can get that CBC and see the potential of an elevated white blood cell count. Um, your vet's gonna know how to read that. They're gonna understand, hey, these are signs that something's going on that maybe we should look further. So, uh, great question. The biggest thing is pay attention to your dog. If they seem off, check. Good question. Next, we've got a few here. All right, it says the Challender. Challender. Instagram question. Again, apologize for all of the butchering, but 
You guys created these tags, not me. <laughs> My dog is hesitant to retrieve dead birds, ducks. Should I move to live birds or is it too soon? Um, I'm gonna say if your dog is hesitant of a dead bird, I would not move to a live bird just yet. I think that that could cause more problems than it's worth. Uh, encourage them, get excited. Sometimes with puppies, you've got to almost act silly where you're getting down on the ground and, woo, look at this puppy. And um, talk like that, it helps. Woo, look at this puppy. Uh, but get excited with them. And um, the other thing that you can do is bring out another dog that wouldn't be, be overly aggressive retriever, but maybe another puppy that they could kind of play together. That would be a good thing if you can find one of those. But definitely not moving to live birds until at least comfortable with that uh, dead birder. When we do it, we lock the pigeons of the birds so they can't flap around. That's what we're worried about is flapping wings, hitting the puppy, scaring them more. So, good question. This is a good one for you, Peter. It says, blue the hunting wine. Is it beneficial to add things such as veggies, coconut oil, fish oil pills to dog food? So, there's a bunch of different things that you can add to dog foods if needed. Um, I'm a big fan of feeding a well-balanced food. Um, I know Ethan at the kennel feeds you can um, mm-hmm. and that's a you know, something along those lines It's really good. It's just a, a well-balanced food. You should not have to add anything to it at all. Um, you know, we get into pro, talking about probiotics, that's again in stressful situations or, or they're working pretty hard. But a good balanced food, um, you can add or subtract food depending on the working conditions, but I, I don't think there's any need to add veggies or, or anything on top of that or, or any other kind of supplements um, outside of probiotics. Perfect. Great question. Um, next one, Tony Jenkins, 062019. 062019. In hunting a versatile dog, should I stay away from shooting fur in front of him? That all depends on how you want to hunt your dog. I personally don't hunt fur, don't want my dogs chasing rabbits, coons, squirrels, porcupines, whatever's going on, so I don't. But if you don't maybe have access to as many birds and you're going to have the option to rabbit hunt, shoot the rabbits. doesn't matter. It's all up to you on that one. If you don't want them to pay attention to fur, don't shoot the fur. Next question we've got uh, from Kirk Johnston 92 Any tips for shooting or is it just practice makes perfect? Well, I'm going to say that a few tips... There's a lot of practice involved, but poor practice is not going to make you a better shot. So uh, a couple things that I think are misleading is the average person tries to shoot a shotgun like a rifle, which involves pointing. And when you point the rifle or aim your rifle, you're aiming at non-moving targets. And I think that most people follow targets and stop. Well, the target keeps moving, and by the time your reaction happens, you're now shooting behind. So moving with and swinging through would be a big one. The other side of it, and this will take a little bit of time to get used to, um, but check your eye dominance. And if you don't know how to do that, there's a couple different, you can search it real quick online. Um, I could even create a video later so that you've got one you can find on our channel. But basically um, checking which eye dominant you are and because uh, a lot more people than you think would be right-handed and left-eye dominant, which means you're looking across the barrel, which is going to be cattywampus. Um, and there are things that you can do with that, but check your eye dominance. And then last, if you can do it and learn to do it, shooting with both eyes open is going to make you a better shot. Having both of your eyes help with depth perception, as well as being able to track and not lose targets. 
So being able to shoot with both eyes open would be another thing that I do and would try to do. You got any other shooting tips? You outshot the hell out of me with ducks the other day. Uh, I would add, don't shoot next to the guy with the big gun. This <laughs> yes. Because you will be embarrassed. So that would be my only shooting tip. So. I don't know about that. Next question Chad Clemens. I have a one and a half year old GSP. Her second heat will be coming up in March of 2020 here. Breed then or wait until she's greater than two? So I think age wise, she's appropriate to breed at this point. She's not going to her second heat cycle. I think she would be fine. I think you've always got to look at, you know, what are we breeding for, right? So are we, are we trying to just create puppies here? We have a male that we'd really like to breed to. Um, have we done the health testings that are behind that? Um, and so hips are going to be the big thing, right? Because when we're selling puppies, we don't want to have a puppy that we sold to somebody that six years old is not doing well and has hip dysplasia. Um, so there's two big ways that we look at hips. Um, OFA is going to be one of those, and then pen hip is going to be the other. Um, OFA is going to be a process um, that preliminaries can be done, but the finals can't be done until after too. So, yeah. if you're going to use OFA for your system, um, it's going to you're not going to be able to define that until she's after two. Um, if we're using pen hip, we can do that as early as 16 weeks. It typically costs more, um, but it's definitely something that you can get a really good subjective measure of what those hips will be. And, I know Ethan does all of his dogs pin hip. Yeah. Um, OFA's fine. Um, I think there's there, there's some variability in those. Maybe don't stay the same as, as they get older uh, on some of those dogs. But pin hip, this is a really good number. Um, and it's, it's just a matter of, of measuring the, how tight the ball sits in there. We put some pressure on it that dog to sleep. How much, how much pressure is, or how much distance is there. And gives us kind of a relative gauge for how well uh, short haired or any of them breed will do within that breed of dogs. So you know, that's a good thing to remember is that those dogs are scaled within that breed of dogs. So a German Shepherd's not gonna be, you know, on the same scale as the short hair is. Yeah, and the bigger the dogs typically the more issues with hips and right. that makes sense. I mean the more wear and tear on them, but um, the cool thing about and to kind of describe it, you're checking two things. You said this with the hips, but the way that I always think about it is the more room that that hip has to roll around in the socket, the more that there's going to be trauma over time. So they're looking for tight hip, ball in the socket, and you have less issues. Yeah. So we've got a lot of great questions here. I think we're going to keep rolling, and what may end up happening is somewhere in the middle of that, it gets broken into a, a two-part problem, two-part video. There's no problems here. We've got a lot of great questions here. I think we're gonna keep rolling and what may end up happening is somewhere in the middle of that, it gets broken into a, a two-part problem, two-part video. There's no problems here. <laughs> what is your opinion on dew claw removal and tail docking, specifically in GSPs and Vsless? So, I mean, tails are gonna be breed standard, right? So that's gonna be something that uh, just matches what they look. Um, I've, I've been around some short hairs that didn't have, and I think the, probably the biggest, one of the biggest reasons is you get a lot of, because they have that long tail, you get a yeah. lot of tail trauma at the end. And so then you end up doing that docking when that dog's, you know, considerably older, 
It's a lot tail. harder. Yeah, and once I get a wound on the tip of their tail, they're incredibly frustrating to heal. Um, yeah. And so I think that's going to be a big reason um, that that was probably ever you know established in that in the breed. And smacking like the corners of walls, and they come around as soon as that starts bleeding. Like you said, it just it's everything. It never quits so, bleeding unless your dog's depressed all the time, and then something else is wrong. Well, and I've seen all of these things where they come up with like uh, plastic tubes to put over them so they can try and heal. All it is, and then as soon as that heals again, they smack it on something else and it opens up a new one. So, so and then do cause, um, I mean, again, that's going to be breeder preference. Um, you know, I think if they're adult dogs. I, what about the studies I've seen more recently that show that there is actual a usage of the dew Have you seen any of those? Or? those studies, no. Okay, I will send them to you so that we can look into it more because I've started seeing people are saying that there's actually usage and how that works, but I don't buy into it yet. There's very few articles. So I think it's because the dogs go, the birds are here. No? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So, but yeah, routinely, like I would not in a, I mean, I'd do them, but in a four or five month old dog, I probably would not take their dew claws off at that point. But when they're puppies, um, this is outside of that research. There may be some, some good validity to that. But outside of that, I would, I would say. Well, it's, it's new to me. I've just seen it in the last like six months maybe at the most that people have started talking about it and I don't know if it's currently we're still taking two claws yeah great question that's a really good one next one here is Lovell Robert what should you look for in a vet is using a clinic for a routine stuff in an animal hospital for emergency stuff acceptable or should I take all of my business to an animal hospital for continuity of care so I think that's really going to depend on where you're at I, I think you know, I'm a little different in my county. I'm the only veterinary practice. You know, we're a three doctor practice. Yeah. We're the only practice in the county. So um, we do emergency. Um, as you get into bigger areas where they don't do emergency, um, you're, you're not really going to have a choice. I, I think um, you need to find a good general practitioner that you trust. Trust um, is you're key. happy with them. Um, figure out what their system for emergency is. Some places in big cities still do emergencies, you know, sometimes up to certain times of night and hmm. are available for questions. Just kind of depends. There's a lot of different systems and it's going to be veterinary dependent. But I think big thing is going to find a veterinarian that you trust, you like. Yep. Um, obviously, you can't find one in every city that hunts with bird dogs. And that would be everyone's dream, right? Yeah. Uh, that we yeah. understand the breed and, and what's going on. But uh, I, I think that's a, for, for me, is, uh, you know, I, was helping someone find a veterinarian. It's just find somebody that's got good common sense and, um, you know, has your pet best interest. I think that that's a big thing that you mentioned. If you can find somebody that has experience with supporting breeds, because that's most of what we're working with here, it changes a lot because um, this touches a little bit on the last question, but every time with ad a few questions like about advocating for your dog, you think they're sick. The average, on average, we take our dogs into the vet and they've been really sick when we've had those issues in the past. That's like, there's nothing wrong with them because they seem, they're mellowed out to the point where they seem, you know, maybe more like the average lethargic, overweight dog that probably comes to the clinic. So, but somebody that know, truly knows the sporting breeds, they can say, yeah, you're, I mean, this doesn't look like a typical short hair. It's super well behaved for a one-year-old puppy or whatever. So, somebody that knows sporting breeds is a, is a good point. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Great question. Next here we have from bde.willow. Hi, my vet is recommending I spay my pup at six months. So we had a lot of questions about spaying and neutering, and this is gonna be one of them. I don't think we're gonna get everybody mentioned in here. Um, this was right below it. There's another question about neutering and GSP. So let's go ahead and talk about the benefits and drawbacks of spaying and neutering and when you think it truly should happen and why. Okay, 
So traditional veterinary answer, right? Spay your dog in six months. That mm -hmm. is the traditional long-standing answer that we've always had in veterinary medicine. Why? So probably the biggest reason was, and I, I would have to actually continue to go look this up and I did, but there was an article a long time ago that talked about um, the increases of mammary cancer and then what that percentage increased, excuse me, decreased over time. Each cycle, the dog's chance for mammary cancer increases. Correct. Correct. And what the, then it's like, I, I, I remember reading this at one yeah, point in time, so like specific percentages. The, so after their first heat cycle, it was maybe 97 and the next one, maybe 95. The yep. next one, the best way to put that. Um, and so what happened, you know, so that was a big way. This is, um, increases chances of, of mammary cancer. Um, that plus or minus, because I've had lots of dogs that were spayed, um, under six months that had mammary yeah. cancer. Um, I think there's probably some validity to it. And you under the influence of estrogen, those things are more likely to happen. Sure. Just um, like having testicles and testicular cancer. You can't have testicular cancer without testicles. Correct. Correct. So. Um, and so that was always the standard answer. So veterinary medicine has gone with that. And that's, I think in, you know, if I'm talking about spaying a chihuahua tomorrow, yeah. that's my same answer six months. Yeah. Um, Small breed versus large breed though too. Correct. Okay. And so, um, and, and we'll talk about females for a second on this. Um, but then once we've gotten past a couple of heat cycles and we'll talk about the benefits of that, I, I usually want to spay a female because as we, as those females get older and they start to not clean out as well after a heat cycle, we definitely increase our risk of pyometria. And so pyometria is going to be an infected yeah. uterus. Um, and those dogs typically come in vomiting their guts out, they're lethargic and their uterus goes from something that's this size to something that's bigger around than this beer can. Ooh, and so that's something that um, definitely, there's probably not a female dog that I think that gets past five if she's not in a breeding system, needs to still have her uterus. Um, but the benefits of keeping that is there's, and I see this, feel this in practice, and there's some pretty good research that shows that we're decreasing we're, by spaying earlier, we're increasing the risk of sports injuries, um, predominantly ACL tears um, in dogs. And so, which makes sense, right? Those hormones are responsible for bone development. And so if we're, um, bone and ligament development, if we're we're removing those sources of hormones, the ovaries yeah. of the testicles, um, then we're gonna increase those risks of, um, of those injuries. Um, so I think that's been something. One of the more common ones that I think you mentioned this to me was like CCL tears or the dog's ACL For sure. equivalent. Yeah, that's probably the biggest one. Um, and this is my subjective view, right? Is that we treat a lot of ACL tears. I mean, a lot in veterinary medicine. Yeah. That is, it is always on the rise as far as the number of times that we do that. I got to meet an orthopedic surgeon today. Yeah. Um, Dr. Kayla, I'll check on his last name, um, works out of Houston area. And he said that he does, he averages like six TPLO surgeries a day when yeah. he's doing surgery. And it's insane. And I would just know without a fact, 40 years ago, there was not that same number of cruciate injuries. Um, and so I think, I think early spaghetti has helped with that. I'm no researcher, but that would be, yeah. that would be my guess. That Do you think it could have been less diagnosed or? No, they're pretty easy to diagnose. They're, yeah. they're carrying their leg. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that, and they'll, it's injured. <laughs> yeah. We can tell. He's walking like a three-legged dog. So um, I think that's definitely a big thing. Spe speaking of that, like when I worked at, uh, guided at a place, there was a dog that hold his leg, probably towards. Probably did. And then they, they will actually, the muscles over time will compensate. And, and they take can kind of get back to it. But they'll never be 100%. They probably won't be 
The other thing that I was talking, this is getting completely tangented now a little bit, but when I was talking to him about this, um, the CCL tears, because it's, it's, tech, it's technically a CCL. CCL yeah, same thing. It's the same thing. Okay. So ACL, CCL, same thing. Um, typically the dogs are referred to as a CCL, is that correct? Or, and then commonly referred to an ACL so that we can understand as layman's folk. Yeah. Um, but they were talking about, I said, how can you tell that it's a wear injury versus actual trauma? Because most of the time with humans, you step, slip wrong, move wrong, something tear your ACL. I did that playing football. Um, but with dogs, it's usually a wear issue from some type of you know, a confirmation issue or, or something that effect combined with how active they are. But he said that they actually do pathology on the ligaments and they can say that this is repeated trauma and overuse or the ligament looks perfectly in great condition and just snapped something, yeah. which doesn't happen very often. It's, it's, it's usually so. overuse over time. Thing. Interesting. Um, so then the other part of that spay-neuter deal there's, there's one research article that came out of California, uh, UC Davis, that talked about uh, increased uh, mammary or increased cancer in uh, golden retrievers. Okay. Were spayed. Uh, and so there was a question about cancer. That's going to be some of that decision on the other side of that. Um, Interesting. So there are studies that show both directions, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is contradictory. Yeah. For sure. Frustrating. Um, so male dogs, um, my opinion on male dogs, I mean, I have two male dogs in the house that never So let's say spaying general, like a, as a general rule, spaying later for larger breed dogs, like what most of the sporting breeds yeah. are, is gonna be healthier for a development, growth and development standpoint. A female dog that three to five years is gonna be my typical rule. Two to five, once they've had one or two heat cycles, so that two to five yep. is with, you know, five being kind of the max there on those female dogs. Okay, so now we're moving on to neutering. I probably don't have a great reason to neuter a dog unless we start to have health problems later on or behavior problems. Okay. Um, so we all know we can live with males that are intact in the house well. I yeah. Do that every day. Everybody's always worried about them peeing on all everything. Well, it's those are all learned behaviors. If your dog understands this is the house, we don't pee in the house, they're not going to lift their leg and pee on things. Correct. If they do, it's a behavioral issue that even that more or less won't even be fixed at that point in time, depending on how conditioned it is, Correct. by neutering. So so that would be a big reason. Um, dogs getting out to roam, so if you've got a short hair that can clear fences, or yeah. some, some of the kind of working dog that can clear fences, and they're getting out and roaming the neighborhood. Smelling the nasty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a problem. Um, <laughs> if you've got, uh, so that's obviously detrimental to their health when they get run over. So that, yeah, that, that would be, be a, bad health and health. Uh, benefit if your dog doesn't get run over. So but, what about with older dogs? What what are the... So there are some chances of cancer, right? Again, yep. you can't get testicular cancer if you don't have testicles, but, um, and there's some also some, you know, around the rectum, there's some areas there that can get some um, testosterone-based tumors. Interesting. Uh, so I, I think, you know, reasonably, um, seven, eight, nine, I think is fine to neuter those dogs. But again, I think they're fine if they keep them. Yep. Um, it's always interesting to have clients that come in and are seem to be there's a an attachment to their male dogs being intact yeah. like it's themselves. Yeah, um, this is always male clients who are attached to their male dogs. Oh, testing. He's gonna so hate I, me because yeah. I got him. Neutered. Well, it feels like they're stealing their own, their manhood. You know, they would never <laughs> want that happen. So, yeah, yeah, it's a weird attachment. But um, I don't think you know neutering a, a male dog at a year old is is not necessary unless you're just gonna have some major behavior issues or something like that. You know, and if you're living in a house with a male dog and a female dog and both are intact you just 
you know, for you're that. gonna have problems. At some you're point gonna have problems. You better have some kind of plan to go board the male dog somewhere, board the female dog somewhere. One or the other, yeah. Because we, I mean, I've even heard stories about dogs digging through walls to get to the female while they're in heat or whatever, just yeah. insanity. So, I mean, I think that's always something you've got to consider. Like, what is the, the you know, if, I, if I've got a really prized female that I want to breed and I've got some male dog that I don't want to ever stud out, mm-hmm. then maybe, sure, neuter them. But I don't think health-wise, neutering that male dog at two years old is any different than leaving him intact. What about prostate issues? Can be there, for sure. Um, and then, so, we'll turn around right into the... If that happens, then we just turn around and neuter those dogs, and those typically go away because those are typically um, testosterone-driven. Yeah, testosterone-driven. Gotcha. So, uh, again, unless there's health issues, probably not 100% necessary, but at the same time, that neuter dog can potentially be easier to live with. Now, the one thing that I want to throw out here that we hear the most often is spaying and neutering made my dog fat and lazy. What do you have to say about that? Well, I'm getting fat and I'm not neutering. So, um, <laughs> um, so typically, I think what happens is dogs' metabolism change. Yeah, um, and no, no doubt that happens. Um, and it changes even more with the spay and neuter. Like correct. as dogs get That's older, yeah. metabolism so changes. Are, they're changing. I think sometimes those coincide. Um, you know, reasons dogs can be overweight, right? Is I mean, there's definitely some health reasons, thyroid reasons, things like that, where dogs can be overweight. Yeah, they're, they're worth looking into. So just blowing off yep. and saying my dog's fat will five-year-old middle-aged dog can have thyroid hypothyroid issues low thyroid issues and if that's the case then we need to supplement that appropriately um, and that can definitely help with some of the appetite absolutely increases. so it's not always just kicked under the table but you know reducing some of that feed sometimes or switching sometimes to a diet feed that's yeah. more fiber-based um, that's going to give them that, that way they can feel. yeah they can eat enough kibble like, i gave my 60 pound dog a quarter of a cup of dog food. Well, and I was, you know, so we've got um, the old man, Rex. Everybody knows him, Grandpa Rex. Uh, He is an easy keeper, and the older he gets, metabolism slows down. I said, well, we just keep him on a slightly lower amount, and he does fine. We regulate that great, and he stays. And I was actually talking to the food guys about this, and they said, you don't want to go below the recommended cups for your dog's weight. So... Um, we're big advocates for feeding to condition, but that was expressed that on the high end of that is more important, uh, is is less important. Basically, you can't get in as much trouble overfeeding, but you can actually be um, holding back what your dog is getting and needs from a nutrition standpoint, like vitamins, minerals, everything else, if you're feeding below the recommended cups for their body weight. And that's the case when you need to switch to a different formula, like what you're talking about. And that, yeah either different formula because i never even thought about that i was like well he looks great and we just because we had to cut back food a little bit but he could be actually lacking in the vitamins and minerals he needs out of that diet because he's not eating enough kibble and so maybe not just eating like a diet food but switching to a lower fat lower calorie yeah food um, altogether different lifestyle dog food um you know we typically always feed a performance type food in this dog that we're hunting yeah. around but um or, or working year round but you know for a dog that hunts 15 times a year i think you know, normal lifestyle dog foods pretty well. And just, you know, adding at increased feed on his hunting trips and, and leading okay. up to that and conditioning dogs. It's going to be a big thing. So we got a ton of questions about spaying and neutering. We spent a lot of time on that. But um, ultimately, it is, in the opinion here, um, going to be a little bit better to wait a little longer than that six-month mark. And then at the same time, if you aren't breeding, 
it doesn't all, it doesn't hurt to be spaying and neutering sometime after maturity. Yeah, and I guess females, I just touch on that again. I, I don't think that you know that two years, maybe even a little bit younger than that. I mean, having a sixty-pound female dog in the house, or even a forty-pound female dog in the house that's going through a heat cycle is not fun. So, at least getting that first heat cycle, yeah. I think, is super important. Um, so we know that dog will be closer to a year uh, year old when that second one comes, and just getting the uh, the joints in better condition. Perfect. Thanks for the questions, guys. And we're on to Facebook questions. We only had, uh, we had a few last Facebook questions, but we've got some good ones. Um, this one was spaying and neutering. So um, Drew Clements, we're gonna mention you just because we've got the question here. And then I would like to know about this as well, Ryan Butler. We answered lots of things on spaying and neutering. So see the last five minutes before this. Yeah, and he asked, does it change with a bigger dog? I think it doesn't, for a sporting dog, it does not change. Perfect. So sporting breeds in general, for sure. but you get into, um, I don't want to use the term foo-foo, but I'm going to say foo-foo dogs. We'll use a Yorkie. Purse dogs. Purse dogs. Yeah. If it'll fit in your purse, different rules apply. For sure. Okay. Next here we have uh, Chris Edwards on Facebook. It says, I noticed that you don't run a vest on the dogs. This is a little bit long, but the whole thing is the question. I have uh, for the last couple of years with my boys, but this year I had an incident with foxtail grass seeds getting stuck under the vest and embedding in their skin. First, I'd like to know what you feel about vests holding more seeds. Second of all, causing them to burrow in and why that you don't use them. Second, if this happens, again, is there any advice you can give us to deal with the grass on infection or what should we be looking for to prevent this? Okay, so so I think a big part of this, and I know it's your yeah. video from our hunt in Montana this year on the tailgate check. Yeah. I think that's gonna be a big part of this, vest or not vest. Yep. I think it is making sure when you get that dog back to the truck, just check everybody over, get those out of the coat, maybe in your in your pack, mm -hmm. uh, in the truck, just have a small comb or something, you can get those out. And Where should we be looking? Armpits, okay. sure, between the toes. Between the toes are a big one. Big, um, and then make sure you're flipping that foot over and looking in between the pads. Um, those are going to be the big places. Um, inside the ears, um, those are places that we can get those. Yeah. So that's uh, Vex actually got a couple this year. You pulled one of them out. Yeah. So yeah. that's something just to think that tailgate check. And if you hadn't seen that video, check that one out because that's a good one. Just kind of going over the basics of everything we're looking for. Absolutely. So um, the next item of you haven't seen us wear vests. Um, I put vests on the dogs depending on the cover and situation that we're at. Um, I would say maybe I got a little bit lazy this year, but it's, it all depends on cover. So if we're going to be hunting a lot of rough cover, I always put them on them. And that would be if we hunted some of the things in South Dakota where we've been hunting a lot is going to be Milo fields. That Milo leaves, grain, stock, all of that stuff cuts them up pretty bad around their eyes, muzzle, chest, all of it. We hunted a lot of grass this year and shelter belts, and those shelter belts are pretty open, so there's not a whole lot of stuff that they're running through, which is why I wasn't running vests on them. The other side of it is when we start hunting in the snow, unless there's a real hard ice crust on there that they're kind of breaking and beating through, um, the snow doesn't affect them either. There was one day that uh, Nick seemed to be a little redder than normal, and I ended up throwing a vest on him, and if you watch all of our videos, you'll see him wearing a vest. But the, that, that side of it is, so sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I use um, Lion Country Supplies Bird Dog Armor Vest, and I run that loose. So a lot of vests, I think people cinch them up tight, so they stay tight. I run mine 
on the size that kind of fits their body and then I run those straps about as loose as possible and I've found that that little bit of bagging prevents anywhere in their armpits, anywhere around their neck, chest, um, and then you don't have a tight fit that stuff's getting collected in. The on of different types of seeds are gonna be more dangerous than others and if you're in areas where they're at, things like cheatgrass, foxtail that I believe was mentioned in here is another one. Um, we had some issues with Indian grass and Indian grass doesn't historically have a bad on or isn't known for having a bad on, but there's so many seeds if they run through a wall of that Indian grass that it's just like they're floating through the air and they get inhaled. Um, what other spear grass is one that's more down in this area? Spear grass down here. Okay. Uh, if you go to, um, I think it's meanseeds.org, that might be, I'll, I'll try and throw it in somewhere here. Um, meanseeds.org would be one that you can look at that talks more about your local areas and, and things to look for. But like you said, checking your dog over is going to help prevent that. The next we actually mentioned in an earlier, but if your dog is acting different, take them to the vet, um, check your temperature of the dog. Uh, the normal temperature of a dog is 102.5. Starting low end would be 100.3? Yeah, 100.5, 100 somewhere there. 100.5 to 102.5 average. And I would say that our short hairs, if we're on the, the top end of that, you know, like people have low grade temps, that's where it starts. That If I've got a dog that's in the 102.5 range, even at the vet clinic, I have them say, oh, it's normal. Well, not for my dog. And if you just check your dog's temperature and know on a regular basis, they run around 100.5. If they're up two degrees, unless they just had gone running or something, yeah. that's gonna be um, something to pay attention to. So Robert Lovewell says, do you recommend wet feeding, i.e. adding water to dry kibble? Um, you may have seen this in some of our videos. I do it while we're on the road to force hydration. It, I feed wet every day, so it's kind of you feed wet every day. So it can be done either way. Um, we for sure do it while we're on the road to force hydration, so that they're drinking enough to kind of um, help with that recovery. But um, another thing that a lot of people say is my dog eats like a wild animal. Adding water to that can help slow them down, so that they're not swallowing it so fast that they start gagging and choking. So that's a great question. Those are a couple reasons why we do it. And folks. That is it. That is all the questions that we have for this evening that we have time to answer. Those are a lot of great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to everybody's, but we will continue to do this. And I'm sure at some point in time, I'll run into you again and we'll do another one. Again, thanks everybody for watching. We appreciate all of y'all that subscribe. And until next time, I'm the guy with the pink gun. And you are? Peter Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> thanks guys.